Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great Welcome to part two of our podcast with Morton legend Andy Ritchie. Let's pop back in as we chat through a shoot magazine from the 2nd of August, 1980. Anyway, we quite look at the, the goal lines, uh, which is the letters page in there. So a couple of letters about football hooliganism. It's just after August 1980, so it's just after the European Championships in Italy and uh, the England-Italy game seen some trouble, uh, which I remember with the tear gas uh, that was uh, the, the, the police had used. Um, uh, first letter, after the recent European Championship in Italy, the British public has been put to shame once more. This is not due to the poor football served up by England, but the fact that a minority of England supporters, in uh, inverted commas, had to start fighting and cause riots on the terraces in Turin. Uh, the English disease, it is called abroad, should be wiped out once and for all before the British police have to revert to the methods of the Italian police. And uh, so this uh, this letter writer suggests ways around it. Supporters clubs could be made compulsory and the only means of getting into any ground home and abroad. Uh, identity cards could be issued to everyone belonging to these clubs with a person's name, address, photograph, signature and a serial number on. Any bad behaviour could want the card being confiscated, which would be an automatic ban. Uh, and the second letter, uh, it's just I'm writing to tell you the disgust I felt when the so-called English fans started fighting against Belgium and Italy. What really annoyed me was the way the English fans complained afterwards about the methods that Irish, that Italian police used to stop the riot. And uh, Shoot's reply there was, uh, I was in Turin for that game and much of, the, much of the blame must lie with the Italian police. They allowed a small scuffle to develop into a full-scale fight and did nothing for six or seven minutes. Then they went in with tear gas and bands. I do not condone the behaviour of the 50 or so English fans who were fighting, but it saddened me to see the Italian police hitting any England fan they could lay their batons on. Yeah, don't you hanker for the good old days, eh? <laughs> <laughs> they were terrible times in football and all over the world. Absolutely shocking times. I'm glad we don't live in them this moment in time now. Yeah. In fact, the safest place you'll be now at a football game's in the park, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. You know, I spent time when I finished the game working down in London. And as I mentioned earlier on, Big Neely was at West Ham by that time and Joe was at Chelsea. So never to look a gift horse in the mouth. I was on the phone to them. So one week, Neely would leave tickets for me at West Ham. And the following week, Big Joe would leave me tickets at Chelsea. So I became a West Ham stroke Chelsea supporter for a few years. And I must admit, travelling... I lived in the city, so travelling out to the East End, to West Ham, or travelling across the city to, to Chelsea for games. Some of the oh, most frightening situations I've ever been involved in. 
you know, just pointless to be driving, you know, because it takes you three hours to get from where I was to, to, to Chelsea at peak time. So you had to take the tubes and you had to travel like everybody did, a normal supporter, uh, frightening the life at you. They were running riots in the tubes and the subways. And and the really smart thing at that time, you probably don't remember it because you are two young guys. The smart idea was to get one of the Stanley knives and as you run by somebody, cut them in the backside as you're running by. So you get a grip of them up here and by the next thing, somebody would just slice somebody's backside wide open. You see guys going a bit blood dripping all over the place and you knew that, you know, FIPA supporters weren't too far away. Happened regular at West Ham games, coming up to the tube stations. They would, what was it they called it? Steaming. So the supporters would rush for the back right through to get to the front and these guys and you had to you, if we didn't dive out the road you, you could have got yourself a right sore you but that, that was their, their, their fun their trick you know they'd cut somebody in the backside with these Stanley knives and move on you know it didn't kill them but it certainly made a mess of you you'd see ambulances all over the place picking people up with cut backsides I thought to myself God you know fighting on the the tubes and the subways and waiting in the tubes back into London again was an absolute it was shocking times. You know, you really you really had to be mad keen on your football to go to a football game at that time. Down south anyway. Down south in that London area when I was there. You really had to be mad on your football. I I hope we never go back to anything like that again. Absolutely. So anything Andy Smith, do you see any letters? Well, it's just the the one Super Saints. I must congratulate shoot readers everywhere who voted for David Proven as Scotland's most exciting player of the season. Well done too, Kenny Dalglish, on your hat trick of shoot titles. As you probably guessed, I am a Celtic supporter, but not a biased one. My favourite other team is St Mirren. I'd like to give credit to the Saints. Some people say the Premier League in Scotland is driving people away instead of into the grounds, but in some cases that's not true. St Mirren, for example, with quality players such as Billy Thompson, Doug Sumner and Peter Weir to name, but a few are putting hundreds on the gates at Love Street and away grounds every week. The Saints style of attractive football which earned them a place in Europe next season and won them the Anglo-Scottish Cup for the first time deserve their success. Uh, it's got a, a, a cracking picture of David Proven there. Uh, That's great hair that, isn't it? Oh, it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant big hair. He's shirt um, tucked out as well which was um, very much his style and you can't see his socks but no doubt they're, they're hanging round his ankles without any shin guards on as well at his peak he was exciting and dynamic and he was brave as well a lot of people didn't give him credit for that he didn't kick the provo out of the game you know he kept coming back Dwee David Hayes tried a few times and Jimmy Holmes <laughs> certainly tried a few times to put the nail on him but Never managed to do it. Provo's smashing player for Celtic like that. And there you go. I think Provo, talk about testimonials, Provo got one, didn't he? He got one at Celtic Park. And I remember at the time I had to give up the game early. Another good reason for, you know, giving players testimonials when, you know, when they were injured or had to give up the game early. Yeah. Uh, I bet you'd pay a few quid for that here now. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a belter. So page 20 there, there's a nice wee advert for uh, Nike trainers. Uh, the Magnificent Seven, the black trainer range from uh, from Nike. Yeah, some smart looking uh, training shoes. They advertising new Nike, do they? 
No. Don't think they need to do that now. No. Uh, and if we move over to... Well, just before Pace... we do, Tom, so down the bottom left-hand corner... Uh, you got... see, it's brilliant. Discount. They're advertising a Clyde strip for £6. <laughs> Underneath an Argentina strip for six pounds. Is that yeah. what you noticed that day? Aye, well, it's the fact that you've got Argentina, you've got England, you've got West Ham, and in between you've got Clyde Dundee well, yeah. and early Aztecs. And as I say, four pounds for boys and six pounds for. And this is Lumley's uh, Sucky Hall Street in Glasgow as well, which is a, a well known place. Must have been a big run on Clyde strips at that time, eh? <laughs> Aye. The bully wee. That's good. That's good. You wouldn't get adverts like that, do No. I mean that 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 is that is an absolute that's manna from heaven for people who collect. I mean the the kits that would be in there probably we're probably talking like admiral kits for the Aztecs and West Ham probably and maybe even the Dundee one would be admiral as well at that point, um, which are just collectors' items nowadays. See they're advertising Visa at the bottom of it take us very few people with credit cards for all that nonsense at that time you know mm. yeah so. You need to advertise your visa card. <laughs> <laughs> okay, page 22 then we'll, we'll yep. go to. So page 22 is soccer in the States. So again, we were talking about uh, football in, in America earlier on. So a few weeks mm-hmm. uh, The brilliant goalkeeping of Phil Parks has helped Chicago sting to the top of the American Conference's Central Division and the third best points tally in the league. Uh, we've got Marsh quits. Rodney Marsh has resigned as coach yeah. of American Soccer League side New York United. Mm-hmm. And uh, David Harvey, Vancouver, who signed David Harvey for £100,000 before the start of the season, gave my contract worth £40,000 a year. I've decided to release him of just seven games from the club. Harvey, former Leeds Scotland hero, lost his place to Bruce Grobelar earlier in the season and has been forced to sit on the bench for the past three months. Uh, it's a troublesome time for Vancouver, who recently released Alan Ball and Willie Johnston. Uh, some players we had in the States at that time. Yeah, absolutely. But they were taking players at that time at the end of their careers. You know, that was that was the way it worked a wee bit. You went out there to earn yourself a few quid at the end of it on. Let you and your family live in the sunshine for a couple of years if you can, you know. Yeah. So it suited everybody, you know. suited £40,000 a year, their contracts are talking about. It was, you know, it was a big contract. A lot of money at that time, you know. Nearly the same that an uh, English cricket player would get as well, eh? There you go. There you go, and they're getting that for being a reserve team goalkeeper there in America. Mm. I like how he's a reserve team goalkeeper to Bruce Grobler. Was that prior to Bruce Grobler coming to Liverpool? It was, yeah. yes. Yeah. So so Bruce, had, um, he went in loan to Crewe uh, right. from Vancouver, but he moved to Liverpool just the year following this, I think, March 1981. This is... Um, yeah, so probably about six months after this magazine or something, that's when he moved to Liverpool. Mm-hmm. I see at the bottom of Parks is reportedly getting double the 15000 a year he was earning at Vancouver. I know a Deliveroo guy that gets £15,000 a year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's the thing. You know, look at the monetary side of things now, you know, and that's that always fascinates me. No, I'm fascinated with money. I like it like everybody else. But, you know, what boys were playing for, Tap, tap earners. You know, it wasn't a lot of money. And I remember people telling me when I was at Morton, you know, the other two players are getting 350, 400 quid a week. I remember thinking, that's phenomenal money. You know, 350, 400 quid a week. Jesus, what? You know, I remember Frank McGarvey going to Liverpool. I think he was getting about 400 quid a week at that time, which was a few years after that, you know. 
So, you know, you look at it now and it, it, it bears near resemblance. There's no comparison to it. Guys can play for one good season now and be a millionaire two or three times a year out of one good season. And some of the guys out with the club, other than if you supported them, you wouldn't really know their names. Yeah. That, that's the craziest part of it. You know, somebody doing it Sheffield Wednesday or Sheffield United or something like that, getting 50 or 60,000 pounds a week. And you guys are football men. They probably throw a name at you and you wouldn't know. You need to go and Google it, you know, to find out who they were. But these guys were earning 15, 20,000 pounds a year at that time. And that was just the norm. So on this, I've included the the NASL standings and right at the very bottom because this is very interesting because you've got New York at the top there, played twenty games and on one hundred and thirty four points. Okay, <laughs> so so I'll explain it does explain here. It says six points are awarded for each win, none for mm-hmm. a loss. While one bonus point is given for every goal scored up to a maximum of three goals or three per team per game. No bonus points are awarded for either an overtime goal or the team shootout goal. So there's, there's a lot to digest there, but basically you get a lot more points in, in those leagues back there. 134 points. Um, in fact, Seattle have got 160 points from 22 They're games. relegated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, they, they obviously were trying different things back then. Um Goals. They wouldn't allow any at that time uh, draws. Mm. So what they used to have is the run from the halfway line and the shootout to beat the goalkeeper. He yeah. had so many seconds to do it, you know. Uh, I thought that would be novel for me, running to the halfway line <laughs> to try and score a goal. I've never done that in my puff before. Uh, and and yeah, there so many seconds to beat the goalkeeper. They didn't want any draws. They wanted plenty of goals. They wanted plenty of cheering. They, you know. Mm. Defenders weren't high in their list of people that they brought in, even although, you know, they were great defenders all over Europe. Beckenbauer was the only one, and he he ended up playing as nearly a centre-forward at New York at that time. Goals were the main thing. Entertainment, get people cheering. We bit like Morton in their heyday. <laughs> and uh, also on that page there, um, again, the series of questions to ask the expert, and just again talking about the contrast to the present day, this is all pretty much information that you can absolutely find at your fingertips right now. Uh, can you tell me the goals that Alfredo Di Stefano scored in the finals of the European Cup? Uh, mm-hmm. There's a bit there, somebody asking uh, Bobby Charlton, how many internationals, how many goals for, for England? Uh, George Best scored eight goals in his 42 league games for Fulham. So all, all great wee snippets of information uh, at the time, and shoot would have been one of the few places that you could find uh, we sort of nuggets like this, but yep. again, let's like say, oh, this is absolutely at your fingertips uh, now. But it's just interesting, what club is going through a league season using the least number of players? And at that time, uh, it says uh, Liverpool and winning the league title in 65-66 used just 14 men for the 42 games. Mm-hmm. And it mentions... The, the type of magazine, Tom, that you read from front to back. You didn't do it all in one day. You went back to it again. You went back to it again. You picked it up again. You would take it. You read it back to front because even if it didn't bear any comparison to what you were doing in your leagues, it was information. And anybody that loves football loves information. Hmm. So, Andy Smith, um, will we jump now to the focus on? Yes. Okay, so let's 
So we're, we're, we're jumping out of the magazine, Andy, and we're going to do a focus. I don't know if you've ever done a focus on before in, in any of the magazines, but I'm sure you've done questionnaires and things like that. So I'm going mm-hmm. to I'm going to ask you some questions and right. just give us your answers. So full name. Andrew Ritchie. My mother still calls me that. She's 93 years of age. Brilliant. Yeah, I know. But at birthplace? Yeah, I was born in Belso, Lanarkshire. The metropolis. The metropolis. Right. Was that a hospital? Yes. Right. Everybody was born at there. The Lanarkshire area, everybody was born in, at Belso Maternity. Hmm. It was affectionately known as Swell Hotel. Yeah. I think, I think we, Tom, we found out we were born in the same place, didn't we? Um, uh, the Redlands. Redlands, yeah, up um, near by off Byers Road. It was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Andy. First car. What was your first car? Oh, Ford Cortina, thirteen hundred. Okay, you remember the color? It was a dark blue, LYS six three three E. Okay, there's nothing wrong with your memory then, is there? Yeah, no. <laughs> what day is it? Aye. <laughs> Who's your favourite player of all time? Oh, good question. I've been asked a few times. My favourite player? My favourite footballer was Jimmy Johnson. Without a shadow of a doubt. Now, don't come from a Celtic background in any any manner of means. But I've based that on my early years of being around about Celtic Park. And it will not be wrong for me to say I, I probably didn't see the best years of Jimmy Johnson. But Jimmy Johnson was one of these people to me that could have played in goals or could have played at centre-half, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but could have played at right full-back and he'd have been a success. He just had fit by right through the core of his whole body. Uh, and magnificent skill, absolutely magnificent, could do anything. And he was cocky and he was bright and he had full of confidence and he was brave. Nothing ever phased him on the football part. Plenty of things phased him off it, but nothing ever phased me, Jimmy, on it. He was just magnificent. I remember my first reserve team game. Went to a broth to play Celtic Reserves. And it was at the time when Celtic Reserves played on a Saturday at three o'clock kickoff when the first team were at Celtic Park. Unusual in itself now. And uh, we travelled up and there was a me, me and a fella called Brian McLaughlin who played with me at that time. Brian was a couple of years older than me. But he'd played in the first team in what have you, at a very young age. And we went up and we played the game. And Jimmy was back in the reserves. I think he'd fell out with Big Joke again. And he he played the game that day. And I'll never forget it. A beautiful summer's day. It was early in the season. And he was magnificent. He did everything. He had, he had both fullback, Cammy Murray. Cammy didn't know whether his backside was bored or screwed. He had no idea. Jimmy tormented him. And me and Brian McLaughlin, all the way for our broth to Kerry Dale Street. And this is before motorways and all this carry on, so it was a fair old journey. We spoke all the way down that, that day after the game about what we Jimmy did during that game. Brian was saying, well, What about when he done this, Andy? What about when he caught the ball there? Oh, you know, all the way down, kept going back on it again. Jimmy was just a magician, an absolute magician. That I would love to have, I would love to have seen him at his absolute peak 65, 66, 67, 68. They four year. I'd love to have seen him. I'd love to have been run about him, to be run about the place and just watch that. A magician. A magician. Brilliant. Uh, you've already mentioned this. Who's your favourite team? 
when I was growing up. Uh, well, give us growing up and now. Oh, growing up, Motherwell. Motherwell's always been my team. Mm-hmm. My dad took me there as a wee boy to watch Wally McCallum, Bobby McCallum, Alan Wiley. Uh, big guy I was lucky enough to play with down at Morton. Probably one of the best reasons for it. He got to Morton and I never even noticed it. Big Johnny Goldthorpe, absolute hero out at Motherwell of mine, you know. Goldie was a smashing football player and a great guy. Uh, so Motherwell was my team. My dad used to, you know, believe this, my dad used to take me there and lift me out of the turnstile. And I wasn't a wee boy by any man that I mean, you know. We were pack of odd fellas stunning in the terracing. The only time I'd come up, I'd stun down at the wall and then I'd run back up again. My dad would give me an odd fella and I'd take it down. I'd eat it hanging out of the wall watching Mullen and go back up to get another odd fella. I only gave you them out one at a time. You didn't need to be greedy. And I watched all Motherwell's games for, for I'd be about eight or nine till about 12 or 13. So Motherwell's my team. I'm never at my happiest when I'm watching Motherwell and watching them win. Brilliant. Okay, what's been the most memorable match? So this can be either something, one you've played in or one you've watched. Uh, bring it, well, I was going to say bring it up to date, but it's not up to date. One of the most exciting games I've seen in a long, long time was at Fur Park. Motherwell, let me take it right now. Motherwell managed by Craig Brown. Hibs managed by John Yogi Hughes. So you put the year on it. I can't, I don't know what year it was. I already watched the game. And the game finished four each. I think Hibs had to win or something to get a European place. I can't remember the background to it. I was working down in England. I'd come up for the game. I wasn't watching anybody. I was just watching the game. And it was absolutely fantastic. It's the best Premier League football game I've ever seen. End-to-end stuff. A big boy, a big foreign player from Mullow scored a Van Basten goal at the back post to gain Mullow a four-each draw. I can't remember, can't remember his name, but I remember coming out of that game and I hadn't been like that for a long, long time, buzzing about the game, about the actual stuff that was played and performed that day and the quality of the football. It was just all around a magic game. That's the best game I'd seen for a long, long time. He really enjoyed it. As I say, end-to-end stuff, brilliant. Brilliant stuff. If the Premier League was made up with that, with the fifty thousand in every ground, every game, eh, every week. Hmm. You may, you mentioned Craig Brown there. I understand at one point he was your assistant head teacher. Is that right? He was my teacher, my primary right. primary school teacher. But he had just finished up football and they had came out to Belvedere. And at that time, there weren't many very many male teachers in primary schools at that time. I remember to try and her headmaster, funny enough, her name was Miss Brown, to encourage Craig to come and be at Bellsall and work at Bellsall shop. She gave him the assistant head te- teacher's post to get him there because he was the only male teacher in the school. Yeah. And I was in the last class at that school, so he was given the last class. And, well, it would suffice to say, I got a prize at the end of that year that I spent with Craig Brown in the classroom. And I'd never had a prize for anything in my life before at school. So he must have been bloody good at that, that being a headmaster. Well, you tell me often that he was good at being a headmaster, you know, but <laughs> he's not shy by any manner of means. Okay. But he introduced me to the football team as well. Hmm. And I enjoyed that. I was quite a big boy at school. I didn't miss many of my mother's dinners. So, you know, I was a big boy and I could kick the ball. 
And Craig liked that, you know. You know, could score for 25 yards or the wee goalkeeper into the great big goal. So, and I remember, not that you dream about being a football player at that time, but I tell you what, you caught a fine dash. He was a good-looking young man, if our memory serves me correct. Crew-cut hair, always dressed immaculately. He was always immaculately dressed. You know, you could have cut your hand in his shirt collar. He was one of these guys. Check jackets, expensive shoes. And he would tell us about his football career. And I remember that was the first time I remember thinking, that would be great. That would, would be great. Imagine playing football and getting money for it. And, the crowds cheering you. And I remember thinking, like, I was only about 11 at the time. When when I left to go to the academy after that, he tried to make me stick in at the football. And he'd also suggested to my mother that my mother take me to, here you go, my mother take me to Highland dancing classes. It improves your footwork and everything else. And he'll, he'll need that if he's a big boy and he wants to play football. <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, that was a focus of fun in my house at that time. That suggestion, but when you look at it now, it's the kind of thing that one of these modern day coaches would suggest to somebody, and that was a way back in 56, 66, 67, hmm. 1967. He was suggesting that to my mother, you know, he loved his football, yeah, yeah, and he was a good teacher, good hmm. teacher as well. He was for me, but we had that we had them on the podcast yeah. before, and it's, it's just brilliant, absolutely yeah, brilliant to talk to. I love my time that I spend well, Mandy. Mm -hmm. The main information and he's well worth listening to and you know spend an hour with, with the old fella like that yeah you know i tell them football managers are all winging it anyway they've no idea what they're going to do next all the ones that i work for have no idea and we, we, we automatically transfer and think that the manager of your football team knows everything yeah you know they don't they go home at night time and they hold their they're heeding their horns at the same as the football support and think what the hell am i going to do in the morning yeah and he uh, he, he argues that one out. No, they're always meticulously planned. Everything's organised. That's the kind of man he is. Hmm. Great guy. I love him. He's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, next question. What's been your biggest thrill? So we'll leave it with football. So what's what's been your biggest thrill in the game? Biggest thrill in the game? It's mm, a good question. What gave me the most enjoyment? As a young boy signing for Celtic, you know, I... Never thought I would sign a full time. Sorry, sign a full time with Celtic. I never ever thought I would achieve that. You know, there was a self doubt in me as a young boy because of uh, situations. So I remember the day that I got offered terms to go and sign, and my dad took me in. I was only 16, 15, 16. And uh, I remember being really excited about it. My dad wasn't really excited about it, he was a model supporter. <laughs> You know, he could have gave Diddley Scott about Celtic, to be honest with you. But I remember being excited that somebody thought I was good enough to, to be able to sign a contract, to sign forms with a football club. In the football in terms, the biggest or the most exciting thing was winning the first division championship with Morton. Mm. That was just, you know, that was great at that time. And I remember been really excited about it all because that whole season people have said no Dundee and Hearts two big clubs uh, full time clubs with plenty of money and everything they'll win the league Morton will drift away they always do they have eight or nine good games and then they drift away they'll know when it you know and to go on through the full season like that the way we did with a very very small squad of players good players but small squad 
and achieve that and win the title in front of Dundee and Hearts, who had just come down for the Premier League, was really massive for me. I really enjoyed that. I really, I really enjoyed the achievement, and so did all the rest of the players at that time. Everybody realised what, what a great job we'd done that season. And personally, it was good as well, because I scored a few goals. Yeah, OK. OK, on the flip side of that, what, what's been your biggest disappointment in the game? Uh, probably no moving after my second season at Morton. And I tried hard enough, and I spoke about it enough, and I'm, God, Christ, I'm 40 years later, I'm still talking about it, you know? <laughs> uh, I would I would love to have moved the caravan, for the want of a better phrase, on at that time. Yeah. Get back full-time again, back to a decent club that were looking to do things and take on the next challenge. I hung a bit too long. That was my problem. But, as I said, that wasn't by choice. Yeah. But if that had happened after the second season, I think I'd have been able to, to have accommodated that, you know, move my season on and, and maybe played for a bit longer in the game. Right. What's the best country that you've visited? Best country? Place I enjoy most is Italy. I love, you know, going to Italy. Mm-hmm. Travelled a bit, a fair bit, and the job that I did in scouting there the years, and it was always a, a joy, you know, when I had jobs to do in Italy. I like the people, I like the lifestyle, I like the way they go about things. Class, the football is class as well, you know, mm-hmm. the football players are class. <laughs> you just need to walk along a beach in Italy and it's class, isn't it? Yeah. You don't see many like that lags on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> uh, it's just quality, all round quality, and, and they like that and everything that they do. Yeah. So uh, Italy, and any holiday I've ever had in Italy, and I've had many, mm. I really enjoyed. And I've got many Italian friends, yeah. so that helps as well. Well, let's see if the next question is related. Favourite food? Italian. Yeah. I like Italian. My diet's not particularly great now. Struggle a wee bit like that, so uh, I always enjoyed it. Italian food. It's never great on other foods, you know, mm. but I, I enjoyed the Italian stuff. And yeah, you can't beat a glass of red wine, can no, you? No, no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm, I'm with you in everything about Italy as well. I absolutely adore Italy. Um, miscellaneous likes. So give me two things that you like to do. Two things I like to do. I love to go horse racing. I'm mad keen on horse racing. I've always been like that for years and years. I love the horses. I love. That sport, it's my second favourite sport without a shadow of a doubt. I love when the wee guy takes a big guy on in it. I love that, really. I, f- I fully that through it. In fact, one of the guys I'm on Twitter now, Dr Jim Walker, who's now become a good friend, he'll be coming down to visit us. He's a Green Okean. He lives in Hong Kong and he's one of the main economists out there. Obviously done very well for himself, and he bought a wee horse for thirty-five thousand. And he put it into Mark Johnson's yard two years ago. The first time it ran, I watched it running. It should have won that day, and I followed it ever since. He won the Ascot Gold Cup there three weeks ago with a horse called Subjectivist, and he won a Group One in France there this year, and he's won about two or three other Group races as well. And the horse has made a fortune for him. And he's taking on the big guys, he's taking on the, the big Arabs and everybody else that goes along with all the big stables. And that's why I like. I like that. I like to follow something through like that. Not always successful, mm. 
But yeah, I like it. I like to see the big guy winning in that game. Okay. Um, on the flip side, again, a couple of things that you you dislike drives you up the wall. Drive me up the wall. Traffic wardens, they drive me up the wall. <laughs> I don't seem to have much luck with traffic wardens and things like that. Maybe I should park in the right places, you mm. know. But really, I'm, I'm getting to the stage in my life now where no many things like that bug yeah. me, Andy. You'll get there in 40 years' time, you're my age, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't let them bother me anymore now. What I really don't like is, I don't like ungenuine people in Fatba. They bug me off. Mm. People who have set their own agendas and think the game was invented for them and everything else is revolving around about them. Yeah, I'm not too keen on that. They've not really discovered the fact that, in fact, boy, you, need, you tell people what they need to know, not what they want to know or want to hear. So that can, that bugs me from time to time. You know, and if I don't see enough happening, I don't see enough change in the game, I get a wee bit frustrated with it. But all in all, I don't really get, you know, I don't go off in one anymore now. Right. The days are long since past. Thank God for that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. It's not, it's not really, a, I'm not really pissed off with much now in my life. Ah, oh, good to hear, good to hear. Okay, next one. Favourite TV show of all time? Here. Brilliant. Great answer. Tom knows yeah, that. That's mm-hmm. yeah, just yeah. perfect, absolutely perfect in every way, every episode. And I've watched. Well, I've got to see every one of maybe game myself. Yeah. I've watched everything in it. I've now got to the stage where I'm looking for things that might not be right in it. <laughs> I spend time now trying to find something that I don't like, either it be a character or you know, a situation, or maybe they've stretched that situation just a wee bit too far, it's no natural life anymore, that just shows you, I'm, I'm, you know, it's sad, but there you go, hmm. but I've never found anything that, that compares to it on television, no, a lot of good shows and everything else, but nothing compares to Cheers. No, totally with you on that, it's one of my favourite all time as well, and see, when you mentioned in there, try to find, probably the character that was the closest is Diane, but she's meant to be like that and she it's done really well. You know, she's a bit sort of just the way about her, but that's her character and it mm-hmm. just makes the whole situation. So it's a character that I probably should dislike, but you don't because it's just played so well and it's scripted so well and they all work together so well. Can he dislike any of them? No. You know, you just can't find fault with any of them, you know? Mm. You know, the old coach used to bug me every so often, but you know that that's an American coach. You know that's it. It, it just everything about it's perfect. You know, yeah. and it's the fulcrum is the barman. Mm-hmm. You know, no doubt about that. Everything revolving round about Big Sam Malone like that. You know, and his whole life revolving round about the place. Yeah, I used to be like that myself when I drank. My whole life revolved round about a pub. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, next one. Favourite singers? So you can have a couple of singers who you really oh, like. Favourite singers? I've got that many. I'm, I'm a music buff. God bless this internet for music, you know. <laughs> when I when I go into WhatsApp and all these things, I can get any music I want. Yeah. One of my favourite singers, one I'm right into now, and I wasn't at the very start, is George Michael. Yeah. I think George Michael was a genius absolute genius yep. and I didn't like him up till about 
eight or nine years ago. And uh, he probably sneaked to the top of the tree. I actually met him once. Right. I rented out property in London. And I rented out to this guy. And he'd just come over. He was studying in the city of London. And the guy had fallen a few weeks behind in his rent. And I asked him about it. And he said he would get his family. And somebody was coming in and what have you. But I never seemed to catch him in. He was always a young boy. I thought, oh, I'll need to get this sorted out. So I'll try to play it heavy. So I put the real heavy Scottish accent <laughs> on, you know. You need to get this rent money paid for me. See if you've not got this rent money paid for me by Friday. I'm going to bounce you right out the door, you know. The Robbie Coltrane accent. He used to work down there in London. And uh, he did. He said one of his family would be along. It was something like 300 quid or something. Way back in the 80s. I said, you get it up to date and you don't let it go again. Or you're out the door. I was in the office and I was sitting in the office and the last year front reception said to me, Andy, there's somebody here. And I went out. And it was George Michael standing at the door with this minder driver guy. The wee fella who had been renting my property was a wee fella called Michael Paniatu, who was part of the family here. They'd come over to London to study. And he came over with a wee bit of money, but he got involved in London, enjoyed the nightlife, spent it in drinking everything else and they were going to pay rent anyway George Michael came into my back office that day to pay me in cash and he paid me in cash and I'll never forget looking at the guy he was perfect in every way you know his hair was perfect his skin was perfect he had this skinny beard on and that his teeth were perfect everything. and I'll never ever forget the smell his aftershave was absolutely overpowering it was and it was brilliant and he sat there and we had a blur for half an hour and he explained to me about the boy and I'd say to him what had happened and we spoke. And he was a real nice fella. And he said to me, oh, and I tell the boy, that Michael boy, you need to be in here before seven o'clock because I go for a pint on a Friday night. And if you annoy you, the fact that I'm going to... He paid the rent money up, right? He paid it in cash. He said, if any problems, he says, you let Michael, let me know and I'll come back. And he put two £20 notes down on the end of the table and he said, and young Michael said, you go for a beer. Have a beer on me, and thanks very much for being as understanding. That was the first time, and I remember thinking, and I hated all that wham stuff, all that wake me up before you go, go, and all that. And about 10 years ago, I got back into his music again, and it's absolutely brilliant. I mm. think he's my number one my number one singer of all time. And I remember thinking, see, seeing that office of mine, that office of mine smelled of that, aftershave for about three weeks after it. <laughs> Every time I walked in or anybody else came in, they went, well, that's lovely aftershave you've got on, Andy, you know. He was he was a, a real, real nice fella for that half hour. Got everything sorted out and he looked, well, a million, and that's not a lot of money, a million dollars at that time, mm. and his music, Andy likes music, stick it back on again and have a listen. Um, Listen, you, you've got me again with George Michael. Faith, listen without prejudice, um, all those, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, I quite like the Wham stuff as well, so... Well, I went <laughs> I to a concert. Be... I went to... It was a concert for when I was in London. Uh, Helen McCartney, when she had passed away, mm. Paul McCartney put a concert on in her memory. And we went with... Pally Mines had got tickets. He was... A, at restaurants in London, we went there to watch the concert, and George Michael came on and sung that night. 
in the concert for her McCartney and he sung the long and winding road Paul McCartney's song he asked him if he could sing, uh, could sing it before he came on and he did if you can get it on the internet stick it on absolutely fantastic and I don't like cover versions of songs hmm. that's the best cover version I've ever heard of any song George Michael that night at the Royal Albert Hall Helen McCartney and it, that's the best cover version I've heard of any yeah. brilliant okay who's your best friend Andy? <laughs> that's a good question you know nobody's ever asked me that you know <laughs> not like this you know nobody's no. ever asked who would be my best friend that's a good one who would be my best friend <laughs> my son sitting at the back of me that's unbelievable isn't it? Huh. well obviously my sons are <laughs> you know they are, they are my best friends. They yeah. see good, bad, and indifferent. And, you know, they put up with me a few, yeah. for the want of a better phrase as well. I've got a lot of friends. I've got a lot of people that I know. I'm lucky that way. I, I think I've been a bit blessed that way. And I tend to hold friendships. Yeah. I'm getting to a stage in my life now where, unfortunately, a lot of people know around about us anymore now, you know. Mm. But they'd be a good... I would have liked it. I wouldn't like to see one person because that no, would be unkind. Yeah. Be unkind to everybody else and be unkind to them to think that, you know, they were a friend of mine. Yeah. No, listen, this is like... Family, my family. There yeah. you go. Brilliant. My two sons would be like that. They are my best pals now without yeah. any shadow of doubt. Excellent. Got a lot of friends, but they are my best pals now. Good man. Brilliant. Who's been your biggest influence? The biggest influence? I don't know. No. I would struggle. There's been that many right across all the broad sections of my life, you know. I've, at certain times in my life, I've had massive influences, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then when you move out of that section of your life, you move into something else, you know. that That's the way it seems to have worked for me. So okay. I think you see it all the way through. Probably, again, my family, my mother and father, yeah. you know. Mum's still here at 93 years of age. Brilliant. She's a diamond. She said to me this morning, I don't think I'll go to my work today. 93, she's got a wee bit of dementia there. Right. And she, she really meant it, you know. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll not go to my work today, I'll have a day off. And my dad was the same as well. Right. Hard-working people put everything into what they were doing for their family and everything else. Hmm. Very little existed outside our own family house in Warnock Crescent. You know, we had other other members of the family. Yeah. Everything revolved around about what happened in there and what was on there. We always... You know, I mentioned it earlier on, my dad wasn't a Celtic supporter, so he never encouraged me to go there and, you know, do the old Celtic or Rangers bit or anything like that, you know. But I think I think at that time he was proud of the fact that you were achieving something. And mm. he was the same with every member of his family. Everybody achieved something, and my dad was proud of him. So my mother and father. Brilliant. Okay. Final question. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? <sighs> That many of them. That's, you shouldn't ask people who are 65 years of age these kind of questions, you know. <laughs> it takes you down roads that you maybe don't want to be on. Yeah. Who would I most like to meet? We'll open it up, Andy, living or dead. I know. I'm thinking about both like that. That many of them. Yeah. Andy, there really is like that, you know. You think about it and you think to yourself, you'd love to meet them again, you mm. know. Okay, listen, brilliant, great answers. Throughout that. New bar. New bar. So so I've 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 put together a few um articles and photos and stuff just from various points in your career, Andy. So we'll just look through a few of those. So this first one is from 
Shoot magazine on the 3rd of April 1976 and it's Tartan Talk by Kenny Douglas and I've just picked it a bit where he talks about you. So Kenny says, so if I must single out a young player at Parkhead, it has got to be Andy Ritchie. At 17, one of the brightest prospects on the Scottish scene. Andy, who's busily studying O-level examinations at school, has a tremendous temperament. After all, how many 17-year-olds could manage to cope with a career in the classroom and an apprenticeship in football without batting an eyelid? Andy has the vital ingredients necessary to make a success of the centre-half spot. He's good in the air and on the ground, and most importantly, he has an excellent turn of speed, which enables him to chase back quickly to retrieve any loose balls. That's some some accolade there from Kenny Douglas, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know what happened to that fella. Some <laughs> turn of speed, he was good in the air. I don't know. Maybe yeah. Kenny was getting me mixed up with somebody else <laughs> at that time. It came out Andy Ritchie, you know. Right, well, there you go. I went, I signed for Celtic as a centre-half and I lasted about four or five games and then they, they discovered that I couldn't heat up the ball and I couldn't tackle and I couldn't run and the bit of a coward so yeah. Big Jock said to me about it he says is that because you come from Belsall and they thought you would replace Big Billy McNeil who came from Belsall yeah. he says you'll never play there again and I never yeah. I went to Celtic Boys Club as a centre forward after that or a striker or whatever you want to call but I did. I signed as a centre half. I think, as I say, because it was because I was six foot at fifteen years of age. You know that that helped a wee bit. Mm. But I, I remember Kenny doing that that regular spot in the shoot magazine. Oh, there's a good photo there. Yeah. So, so this is from Tiger from nineteen seventy six again. So I'll just zoom in yeah. a bit there, so we can. So what you talk yeah. through that a wee bit? Yeah. I'm just looking through some of them. Yeah. Uh, there, Alistair Hunter, as I yeah. spoke about Dennis Conahan. I played with. Morton for a wee while as well. Yep. A slim looking big latchy there before <laughs> yeah, he yeah. discovered pie and beans. Nah, some some smashing players amongst them. They're big. You know, I'm, I'm just looking there again and some of the boys aren't they, aren't they here anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just when I see Paddy down in the corner, Pat McCluskey. Yeah. Yeah. Harry and Paul. Yeah. Johannes Edwardson, you know, passed away there not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a good side. It was hard to get into that team as well because they had all been experienced right through the reserves and everything else. That team, Celtic were changing. Uh, trying to bring in more younger players. See Jackie Mack. Jackie Mack Sr. Yeah. There as well. And we're all wearing the style of matchmaker boots. I know you're looking at everybody's feet today. <laughs> I remember we got £250 each a season for wearing them. Right. Uh, we got paid... Celtic won the nine in a row and they took us on an end of season trip to Bum Jersey. We played at Portsmouth, helped him in a game and then went to Jersey. And we all got £250 earlier in Jersey in cash for wearing the boots. They were the most uncomfortable boots you've ever had in your <laughs> whole life. Yeah. Absolutely hopeless. In fact, see Kipper Lynch there. Kipper Lynch hasn't got the boots on. He's got Adidas boots, but he's tried to put the white stripe on paint down the side of them. <laughs> See that? Yeah, yeah. And Danny didn't wear them as well. Danny wore Adidas all the time. Everybody else. Even Kenny's got a pair. It looks like Puma. Puma yeah. But he painted down the side of them to make it look. Yeah. I, I think I saw that there's a there's an advert for Stylo Boots, which has the Celtic. It's, it's not this team photo, but it's another team photo. And... Because Kenny was the only one that didn't wear them, there was actually a 
like a physio bag or something in front of him. Aye, that's right. Uh, so Kenny moved. I got a deal with Puma the same year Kenny got a deal with Puma down in England. And they brought out Kenny Dalgleish Pumas uh, down there. And they brought out a boot. I don't think they sell that many of them. Andy Ritchie Puma. <laughs> it was the same year we won, we won the first Kenny won it in England. Now won it year magazine up in Scotland. It was that year I got a deal with Puma after that. Yeah. And uh, I remember when I went to Mullerwell, signed from Mullerwell. I had to scrap that because they had a deal that everybody at the club had to wear. The worst football boot you've ever put on in your whole life. It was like wearing a club foot. <laughs> Patrick, they were called. Yeah. However the hell Patrick was, they should have taken him out the back and shot him. <laughs> the boots were absolutely horrendous. Yeah. And I had to give you back up the Puma deal because I'd signed for Mullow at that time. But uh, at that time, Celtic won them. You know, the style on, I think they had them for about four years. Mm. There's the great Hugh Taylor. Hugh Taylor. So this is from the Scottish Football Book in 1979. It's you receiving the Player Writers Player of the Year award, I think it was, for That's that right. year. That's right. Hugh was the chairman of the Scottish Sports Writers that year. Mm. Uh, yeah, many, many is a good afternoon I spent with Hugh Taylor. <laughs> yeah. He was uh, good company. And there we go. There's that's, a, that's a shoot magazine picture. Yep. So that's you getting the. the the shoot uh, Scottish most exciting player of the year presented by Benny Rooney. That's right. Yeah. Kenny got his at the, the big Anfield sign outside Anfield. I think it was Bob Paisley presenting him. Yeah. And the two of them had done it, their casual gear on, and Morton made me wear that bloody strip. <laughs> Look at it. You know, for to get a picture like that taken for Shoot Magazine. Whereas on the other side, Kenny's. Kenny's was done, I think they were in the casual gear. It looked that stupid. So I was going to ask. Do you get to keep, or did you get to keep the trophy? And do you still yes. have it? Yeah, yeah, you got to keep the trophy. It was inscribed on the front. I can't remember where that trophy went to. Mm. I never ever, I'd, I mean, I less gave away all my stuff and got all the end, and it was like that. Yeah. You know, if you said to me, have you got that now? I'd say no. Right. Uh, I don't know where it went to, but it was inscribed at the front, and everybody got a different different every year you know mm. I'm taking this would have ended up on the, the Morton dressing room wall as well then this photograph yeah aye was that ridiculous <laughs> you know I think I would put a football strip on and everybody else was able to stand there with a suit and column tie on you know yeah. I remember thinking it looked stupid at that time mm. God, they're an ugly bunch that mob, aren't they? Yeah, so this is from 79. This is a Morton team group and yeah there's a, it's, it's a big team group as well it's a big squad isn't it yeah, it wasn't a big squad the year before, mm. but th this was included, uh, this was all the reserve team and everybody else at that time. It was to make us look as if we had a big squad, you know. Right. Uh, the front row and three or four at the back, Tomo had come in, Bobby Russell. Bainsey was back by that time, George Anderson. So that was a whole, the Morton Football Club encapsulated in that one picture. Mm. And we signed a few because we were going up to the Premier League that year, so. Uh, before I think we had about 14 players yeah there's a couple of uh, suspect perms going on there with um, Neil Law and Jim yeah. Tolmey as well you may better gain by Gally Scott one wouldn't you god that's <laughs> a topper the bald eagle was gone by that time yeah Bobby Charlton couldn't even have covered that heat up with the hair <laughs> but there was we Tolmey had a dodgy one and Neely had one yeah uh, and John McNeil had one Bobby Russell had one you, you had one yourself at one point, didn't you? Right. 
Oh, I, I, I got it done about seventy-seven. But everybody was getting them done then, you know. Yeah. And I kept it for a while. I kept it to get crazy. In fact, I ended up with wee Tommy's, mm. and and I got it all. Well, I'd love it now, right enough, you know. <laughs> but I do a wee bit more with it now. Yeah. But that was a, that was a fashion. Yeah. So we're moving on to the Panini um, Morton um, page from 1984. And mm-hmm. here we go. And they're actually down the bottom there with a a, a more um, well-kempt haircut going on with yes. that one. A bit of a middle shed, I think, going on as well, maybe. Yeah. No, there's a wee bit of a, a, wee bit of a pullback there, isn't there? A wee <laughs> bit of gel. Can, can I spot a wee bit of gel as well? Yeah, yeah. These yeah. things, these Panini things were big at that time, eh? Oh, aye, aye. I moved to London and my boys were relatively young at that time. And I lived in London just about 100 yards along the road for the Panini office. Right. High Street in Islington. And these were hard to get. You get plenty of them, but you could never get the whole team. Hmm. And the boys used to be able to get in. He's sitting, sitting laughing in the chair earlier. They were able to get into the Panini office when I was bringing them back to school. And they would give them the ones to make up their collection in the office, in the Panini office. So, you know, they were the ones you swapped, I'll give you five of Ian McLeod for one of Andy Ritchie, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, Boys didn't need to do that. So they had their Panini books because we lived right across from the Panini office and the lassies were very kind to us. Hmm. Good pictures there. Oh, good boys. Good looking boys at Motherwell. Aye. Yeah. So, big Johannes Edwardson. I followed Johannes at Motherwell when Johannes had came back from Hanover to Motherwell and then he moved again and I took our Johannes' spot out at Motherwell that season. I'm assuming um, Ian McLeod is Murdo's brother. Is he Murdo's Because he looks no, like him. No, he looks like him, doesn't he? Uh, is, he is he not not related? No, no, he comes from Edinburgh originally. Motherwell signed him for Falkirk. Real nice guy, Ian McLeod. Left fullback. He, he does look a bit like Murdo. <laughs> I can't remember Murdo's brother's name now. That's terrible, isn't it? No, but he wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, Huey Sproke was a character. <laughs> Big Joe Carson. Big Joe played up at Arbroath. And Raff. I see a bit of Raff and Gagey. Right. Aye. Jo- John Gagan um, is, is an absolute pleasure to be in his company. He, he did the Clybank dinner dance thing. The dinner dance. There was no dancing. I don't know what I'm talking about. The Clybank um, dinner the, the other year and it was just absolutely brilliant. Brilliant, absolutely isn't brilliant. it? Yeah. He was known as a nervous winger out at Motherwell. Yeah. You know, Gigi could panic when the ball wasn't anywhere near him, you know. <laughs> and he gives me that impression when he's up there on stage doing that stuff, now, aye, you know. Aye, aye. You actually feel a wee bit uncomfortable for him at the start because you're, but that's just all part of it. Yeah, he yeah. uses that. And and he's, uh, and I was going to say actor, you know, and he's, and he's speaking when he does that, you know, it, it comes across to you that he is a wee bit nervous, but he's not really. Mm. Yeah, Ali Mocklin, who you mentioned earlier on in there as well. With a, That's right. Quite a modern well, haircut. Well, in that Morton picture. Ali Mocklin's brother was in that as well, Stuart Mocklin, who had signed for... Which one? In this uh, one? He was standing in between... He's to the left of Ali Scott. Right. yeah. That was Ali Mocklin's brother, Stuart. He played for a season and a bit down at Capelo Ways as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jock Wallace, I think, signed Ali Mocklin and Gary McAllister for Leicester City. Gary's still there. He's an ambassador of the club down there at Leicester now. Hmm. I've seen him a few times when I was down watching their games. Still lives in that area. Yeah. And Raf's the SFA man for Greenock. Right. 
Stuart Rafferty. Nice fella as well. Hmm. Horrible strip, that Mother strip, isn't it? Yeah, it's, they've had better ones. They have. Yeah. So after this, you had... I'll, um, so I'll read this. Andy's open for offers. So this is from March, from Match Magazine 1984. And it says, Andy Riches joined Clydebank on a month uh, contract after rejecting an offer from FA Cup Killers Blackpool, Giant Killers Blackpool. But the big man's long-term future remains uncertain. He said, I will be playing for Clydebank for a few weeks. After that, I just don't know what will happen. I want to stay in the game if I can and hope to do a good job for the club. If that can interest a few other sides, then so much the better. I could have signed for Blackpool. I spent a few days at Bloomfield sampling their setup, but they only offered a contract to the end of the season. Obviously, with the hassle of moving my wife and kids to Blackpool, I wanted a longer commitment. Andy's talents will clearly be an asset to Claybank in their bid to win promotion to the Premier League. But for Andy, the next few weeks gives him the chance to show any interested parties that the magic which won him Scotland's players. Scotland's Player of the Year award in 1979 is still on tap. So, I mean, you've spoken to Tom before, so you're aware that we are Clydebank supporters. So, this this mm-hmm. this is what we've been building this um, whole show up to. It's just this one little article. So, I, th- I think Clydebank had most of, most of their games postponed for the the weather that time you were at Clydebank, Andy. I think you only managed to play twice or something. Uh, well, it started. It says I'd be hoping to go back and show my skills again. And uh, see, to be honest with you, my career was finished at that time. It was gone, and I knew that. You know, I was trying desperately for for to hang my hat and something or something bolt a lightning through the sky would turn it round about. You know, and I got a phone call for Jack Steedman. You know, now, I didn't really know Jack Steedman particularly well, but I'd heard of him, and he, he invited me down to Kilbury Park. Hey, you. Kilbury, I couldn't remember the name out there to speak to him about coming in and he had a look at me and he, he could see that I was out of shape and everything else you know, but he wanted to do something so he sorted out a deal he said we'll try it for a month and I thought oh, I'm not doing anything else anyway so I asked him for a lot of money well a lot of money, Clyde Bank terms he wasn't too sure about it, I said well I'm not coming for the month then and uh, he eventually agreed to it so we signed a contract it was a Tuesday, and we were supposed to play Air United on the Wednesday at Kilbowie. And I got up on the Wednesday morning, it was five or six inches of snow outside my front window. And all the games were cancelled for a month. So when the games got back on again, that Air United Cup tie had to be played. Alan McNally was playing with Air United, that's how I remember that game. And my contract was up on the Tuesday. The game was on the Wednesday. Jack came in and said, you know, we've got everything sorted. If you just sign this contract, I'll register it for another month. I said, ah, you'll only register it for another month if you give me another month's money. <laughs> I've paid you and you've not played, played any games. No, this is starting. I said, I don't care. I was available for them. The games were off. That contract suit, you need to sign another one. He says to me, what I'll do then is I'll organise it and have the money sorted out. And you go and play the game. I said, right, you have the money sorted out. That'll be fine. Anyway, I went down to the park for the game on the Wednesday night and uh, Jack appeared. He said, I'll sort your money out after the game. So I played the game. I went in. He said to me, no, we don't want you to come back. Don't bother. So I played the game for Clyde Bank. Probably their best paid player ever for four, <laughs> four weeks' wages. One game. Well, I played one game for Clyde Bank. I think Air United beat us that night. And see, to be honest with you, I couldn't have cared less anyway. Hmm. But that was, you know, that was Jack Steedman, I think, you know. 
he says, hey, hey, we'll sign for an hour. And he obviously watched me play that night and thought, nah, nah, I'm not paying any more money for him. Yeah. Uh, and that finished my very, very short career at Gilbao. Great games against Clyde Bank when I was at Morton, right enough. We always had some spankers. Hmm. Some absolutely great places. In fact, Mark, Mark McGee got his move to Newcastle United on a performance at Kobawi one night when he destroyed Clyde Bank himself. Newcastle signed him the week after that. Yeah. You had some good players in there. Yeah, we did, aye. Um, I think Mike Larnock got the move to Newcastle just at the same time as Mark, Mark McGee went, and obviously with David Cooper. That's right. Uh, and then good on Tommy Coyne, Bobby Williamson, guys like that. Jack Steedman. Jerry McCabe was a smashing player for Clyde Bank. Smashing football player. In fact, my first ever game for Morton was against Clyde Bank at Capilla on a miserable Wednesday night. The Coop played that night as well. Another big boy played up front with Mike Lanner, Blair. Blair Miller. Blair Miller. He was a talented boy, but unorthodox football player. But he was effective. He was strong, he could score a goal. He was a football player to Mike Larnock, the runner. You know, they were, they comp- instead of Newcastle signing either Andy Ritchie and Mark McGee or Blair Miller and Mike Larnock, they come up with this smart-ass idea that they would do a mix and match <laughs> and took Mike Larnock and Mark McGee and they never played together mm-hmm. at Newcastle. You know, that was, that was the thinking of it all. But they had some smashing players. Jim Fallon was a great player as well. Jim Fallon was too nice a guy to be a football player, you know, especially a centre half when it was expected in those days that you gave out a couple of Saurians. Yeah. I'm surprised Jim did, because he would earn more money in his physiotherapist <laughs> role if he'd gave out a few unions, you know, yeah. a few right sore ones to people and then he could have nursed them back to health again for a few quid. Jim Fallon's a lovely guy, he helped, he helped my family many, many years ago when he was a physiotherapist at a rehab centre in, in Uddingston and, and he helped my brother who had had a a very, very serious car accident. And he helped him back to his feet again and helped with his rehabilitation for about two years after that. But even in the football, Jim Fallon was a nice guy. As I say, too nice to be a football player. Yeah. So so my, my football hero, hero Andy, is Jim Gallagher. So that, that's my hero of all time. Um, <laughs> so what, what, any gal. memories? Big gal? He was a... Uh, I was going... An orthodox, wasn't it? Big Jim would make saves at you absolutely nothing. He'd pull things at the back of the net, but you always thought he'd maybe give you a wee chance, you know? Hmm. He would he would maybe not being disrespectful, he'd maybe miss time one or he'd come at the wrong time or whatever. I always had that wee feeling off Jim. But it was a smashing big goalkeeper. Hmm. You know? How long was he there at Clyde Bank, were you? He was seventy two he arrived, wasn't it? And so it must have been about he left, eh? Yeah, did he get a testimonial? He did, yeah. Did he? Good. Because yeah. I, I knew he was there a long time and he was very, very popular uh, with the supporters. Just surprised, Levin. But we touched on it earlier on in the podcast, the amount of good goalkeepers that were mm. flying about up here. You know, that every club's goalkeeper was a big marker for clubs down in England, you know. And you would have thought Jim would have been absolutely ideal for something like that. You know, it, it wouldn't have been big money. He wasn't coming for the Rangers or Celtic. You know, he was. You were dealing with Jack Steedman, so similar to my insight, you should maybe with Hal. Yeah. You know, it might have been more, more beneficial for Jim to, mm. to have got a bigger club out of that. Yeah. Okay, so just um, 
We're at Richie of the Rovers, so Andy Richie, the controversial former Scottish footballer of the year, so they're they're, they're moving on a little bit here now, um, has taken his first steps towards a managerial career. Richie, who had a few games with Albion Rovers at the end of last season, when the Copebridge side finished bottom of the second division, has agreed to become their player coach. So you you were speaking about this earlier on. Invited to do so by the club directors, the 28-year-old has accepted the challenge and success will mean the manager's office. <laughs> That's a nice wee word, that, isn't it? It's a nice wee bit. Yeah. Doesn't it typify the amount of shit that went on at Albion Rovers? It's quite a nice wee bit, you know? Yeah, it's full of hope, isn't it? It's full of hope. It is, it? you know, hope and expectation. <laughs> if I didn't know better myself, I'd ask you, what happened to that guy over there at Albion Rovers? That looked quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. What a shocking place to play your football. Absolutely yeah. shocking it was. And I had I had been caught at a, a, a right vulnerable time, I think. I might have been on mind-altering substances as well if I hadn't known better. I took that job out there at Albion Rovers. You know, it was it was unbelievable. You know, the, just the way the place was run and the way that chairman, Tommy Fagan, ran the place. And you never forget the first day I went in and I agreed to to join the club as a player manager. And he says, right, your office is up the stairs. So I go way up the stairs into this corridor and at the end of the corridor there's a door that says manager on it you know somebody had painted it on so I open up the door and I go in and I'm just looking and there's a desk and a chair and a few drawers down the side but the place is absolutely filthy you wouldn't have put pigs in it it was absolutely filthy and I remember going around sitting in the the, the, the chair looking at the desk and I open one of the drawers and it's all full of papers and that so, so again I put my hand on the papers and then Door opens and this guy walks in, old fella. I says, hello, how you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. I says, can I help you? He says, no, can I help you? He says, who are you? I says, I'm the new manager of the football club. I'm Andy Ritchie. I'm standing up to shake his hand thinking. Yeah. He says, you're in my seat. He says, that's my seat and my table. He says, I'm the handicapper at the Dugs. He says, get out of my office. That was my introduction to Albion Rovers. <laughs> I thought, oh, and when I looked through, we had only seven signed players, and one of them was myself. And he told me he had 18 players and everyone else. Oh, it, was, it was an absolute disaster from start to finish. The only good thing that ever happened at the Albion Rovers for me was that I managed to encourage Bernie Slavin hmm. to come and join us. Now, I'd known Bernie from Morton, and I knew exactly what he could do, Bernie Slavin. Bernie Slavin was the best finisher at Capital when I played down there. Bernie had two great feet, he had composure in round about the box. He could finish, you know, he was the best finisher. <clears throat> he'd went and had a bad spell at Queen of the South and he'd made a life wrapped again. And I went to his house to speak to him, spoke to his da, and his da said, Bernard will be there for a year, he'll come back and play. And I signed him for a year. But the old guy wasn't happy about, you know, ah, we don't want slaving, he was hopeless, you know. And uh, Bernie Slavin came and played and he finished. The top player, top goal scorer in the country that year with Charlie Nicholas or something like that. And he got a move to Middlesbrough. He played the English top division. He played at World Cups. And uh, Bernie's great claim to fame is he met the Pope. You know, but everything else in football he achieved. He played international football and won things. So hmm. that was the biggest achievement for that nice wee part there that we see on the screen, you know, about <laughs> Albion Rovers. Yeah. I remember he got a case of champagne or something. And I was away by that time. I had moved to London. And he, 
my family were still living in Mount Vernon. And they got one morning to pull the milk in outside the door and there was a bottle of champagne outside with Bernie on it. Send that down to Andy, you know. Nice guy. And he had a great career after that. But the rest of the boys were honest, hardworking. Bernie was great. Magic. I met Joe Baker. Hmm. Two great things that happened out of Albion Rovers. So I'll be forever grateful for these two things anyway. Brilliant. That's superb. So so there's this there's this article just a little bit later on. I'm just going to read through it because there's another one which is related from it anyway. So this one says, Waiters thrashed by unknowns. It says, A team of Spanish hotel waiters got more than they bargained for when they challenged the guests to a football match because representing the holidaymakers was a team comprising no fewer than eight professionals who turned the game into a rather one-sided one. Uh, Everton's Mike Lyons, Billy Wright and Gary Stanley, Ipswich trio Paul Cooper, Alan Hunter and Eric Gates, Man City youngster Tommy Caton and Peterborough's former Ipswich winger Mike Lambert were the men who took part. The waiters who boasted one or two useful players on their side had no idea of the real identity of their opponents until it was too late. Within 20 minutes, the star guests were six goals ahead, even allowing for the fact goalkeeper Cooper played up front and Gates, normally a striker, took over in goal. Everton skipper Lyon said, We were playing in sandals and it was just a laugh. Even the waiters who fancied their chances a bit could see the funny side when they were let in on the secret. Now, when I read this, it reminded me of an article I saw, I think it's in 1969 it was. Um, so, this one is Scotland 20, England 0. So th- this one gets aged by the way they spell Kenny Dalglish. So they've got D-A-L-G-L-E-I-S-H. So this one, Scotland 20, England 0. That was the intriguing scoreline when holidaymakers from two countries clashed in an unofficial international on a Jersey beach last summer. And we can now reveal the secret behind the Scots' overwhelming victory. They had two men from Celtic and Rangers within their ranks. One of them, Celtic wing half Kenny Dalglish, and the other... Rangers forward Alex Miller. Dalglish told the story of the Jersey Massacre. We were there with a crowd of our mates and some English lads challenged us to a Scotland versus England match. They put on a big act, giving the impression it was going to be easy, but what they didn't know, that most of us were professionals. They were never in the game, just about the only time they touched the ball was to re-centre it. We became popular with the other Scottish holiday makers, a big crowd cheering us on whenever we played. I love that, that, you know, just the whole cockiness of the, the local waiters and stuff. And mm-hmm. They had no idea who they were up against. Um, but I, I was I was sort of secretly hoping, clinging to the fact that maybe you would have been part of that, but I think it was just before your time. Um, yeah, too early for me, that, Andy. That, yeah. that also, as well, makes me think of the situation of uh, guys who, like, went the Dukla Pumperson games <laughs> we used to play in. You know, you turn up, we went to... We went to Germany to play the British Army of the Rhine in Germany under the heading of Tukla Pumpherson, Sawmill and Tannery. And none of these army boys knew in at all. They hadn't a clue what it was. And we all turned up and we talked about, you know, Celtic Rangers, former internationalists, you know, one or two circus acts like Chick Young and Rob McLean. But they, they were the makeup guys, you know. But we would get there and play. And we played the, the parachute regiment, had nine players in that team. They were all physically fit and everything else, and other PE men. And they looked at us, you know, big pot bellies <laughs> and trying to get out on the park. And we gave them a doing about 16 2 or something like that, and they couldn't <laughs> believe it. Yeah. John Blackley, John Brunley, Jimmy Bone, Gordon Smith, Alec, 
McDonald, uh, Danny McGrain, you know, full football team of ex-pros. They still gave them an absolute doing. And that reminds me of that there. You should never judge a book with its cover, no. especially in football anyway, you know. Yeah. And I'll bet you a dollar to a donut. The guy who wrote that article found out that bit of information for shoot. We had the tappy a couple of pints on a Tuesday afternoon with somebody in the pub. Yeah. That looks like something you don't ask that. You ask Google now. You just ask somebody that was in a pub on a Tuesday afternoon talking to somebody or a couple of pints. That's the kind of stories you would get. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, Tom, hand it back to you. Uh, right, well, we'll just sort of uh, wrap, wrap up then, just uh, quickly look at a couple of e, uh, couple of e bits. Page 45. Page mm. 45. So there's there's Jim McLean. Tangerine Terrors want the big one. Uh, shrewd and talented. Jim McLean, the Dundee United manager, is a man who knows a thing or two about football. Jock Steen is numbered among his admirers and is not much that goes on in the game that McLean, a brother of Rangers, Tommy, and Air United's Valley does not know about. He's still currently shaping his Dundee United lineup and is a man who readily admits he looks for perfection. Did you, you have um, any interactions with uh, Jim McLean during your career, Andy? I did when I left Mullerwell, he phoned me uh, to see if I'd go to Dundee United. But I remember at the time, you know, it'd been such a bum deal at Mullerwell like that, and things hadn't worked out. To be honest with you, just totting on the edge of finishing up anyway. And Jim phoned me up and he offered me to come up for a year to, Dun to Dundee United and play up there. But he offered less money and I was on at Motherwell. And the only way you would qualify, the massive big bonuses, the only way you qualify for bonuses if you played in the team. And he also wanted to be moved to Broughty Ferry, do all that nonsense of locating and relocating. And I remember saying it was the only way possible we could work around about the fact that, well, if I'm injured, well, you'll not get the bonus. Well, from one the bench, well, you get half the bonus. Well, from the one the bench, well, you get nothing, you know. That was his negotiating skills, Jim, you know. And I thought, nah, I don't really need that right at this moment in time. Yeah, I didn't think it was the right move. And I certainly wasn't going to relocate like that. Definitely wasn't going to do that, because I'd relocated to go to Mullerwell. And I wasn't going to do it again. Yeah. I'd only been at Mullerwell six months. So that was my only dealings with Jim. I spoke to him many times after that. I remember... When I worked uh, as assistant manager at St Mern with Jimmy Bowen, we played them in the League Cup. And, uh, I had a half-hour blather with him up there prior to the game at Tannadice. I'd taken a load of kids up there to play them one night. And he was asking things. and It, it, it settled himself down a wee bit by that time, I think, you know. The mad years were there for him and he was beginning to mellow a wee bit, if that's the right, the right phrase, to hod to Jim, you know. But I didn't really know him that particularly well. I played in a testimonial that he'd organised. He'd phoned me as well for the fellow who was hurted in the train crash. Can't remember his name now. That's terrible. It went from Queen's Park to, Dun uh, to Dundee United. And during that, he had a bad train smash on the way up. He travelled up in the mornings and I played in his testimony. It was through Jim. Jim asked me if I'd come up and do that, you know. But I didn't really know much other than that about him. But the players, I think... You know, he paid Paul Hegarty, he paid Davy Neary, he, who, who was the other one? Ah, the wee boy, a wee luggy, up, up front. You know, he paid all them good money. Everybody else was on lesser money. But he did, he, he paid, I think they were paying three or four times the bonus that Celtic Rangers were paying at one time. But uh, you had to be in the team to get it. Mm. Jim had the right idea with football, pre-Bosman. He got paid for results. But he just ripped the earth with it a wee bit, you know, and took it too far. 
as it says in the telly. He just, I think they've been able to sort that out to make sure that the players were well looked after and they were all well looked after together. You know, it would maybe have kept that team together a wee bit longer as well. Charity partner this season is the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share Group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clydebank. Right, uh, page 50. So page 50 is uh, Steve Archibald, the man to end the Tottenham goals famine. So this is Steve Archibald, who's just recently moved from Aberdeen to Tottenham. And uh, Spurs fans have started the countdown to August 16th for that is when Steve Archibald, nearly a million pounds worth of goal-scoring potential, will show anxious Spurs fans whether he is the man to end the goals famine that separates Spurs from top honours. Uh, and I think he did. Spurs obviously would only win the FA Cup 1981. And uh, mm. obviously it was a success down there at Tottenham. Did they win the European Cup? They won the UEFA Cup in 84. UEFA Cup, 84. Because he's got one of the penalties, the one of the winning penalties, I think, Stevie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he scored a lot of goals down there. Absolute stack of goals. Did he go to Barcelona after that? Yeah, yeah, he was a class player, Steve Archibald. Yeah, well, he must have done all right at Tottenham. You know, his next move was Barcelona. Uh, and there, just beside that, there was next week a uh, picture of Ian Wallace there. Well, Ian Wallace's £1 million transfer rekindled his Scottish on national career. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to Nottingham Forest with Dumbarton, didn't he? Yeah, uh, he went to Dumbarton, Coventry, and then he went to Coventry. Coventry. I, I, I didn't think he went for a million pounds with Dumbarton. <laughs> We've never heard the end of that one, <laughs> Dumbarton people. Uh, he had a great spell down there. I don't know if he still lives down there, I don't know. I remember... I remember meeting Stevie Archibald when I was doing some scouting and I went to Marbella for two weeks during the winter. It was a thing called the Scandinavian Masters, one you know, of the best clubs in Scandinavia, put up training base for the start of the new season in Marbella and they would play each other in round-robin tournaments called the Scandinavian Masters, obviously. 
And Stevie was there with an agent at the time. And uh, he was, all these Scandinavian players were there, but Stevie was trying to sell everybody Spanish players at that time, you know. You know, it's like going into an Indian restaurant and asking for Chinese food, you know. <laughs> you're there to do one thing, you do it, and you move on to something else. So I don't think he lasted long in the agency game. Hey. I think he's a very successful businessman there in mm-hmm. Spain now. In fact, I know somebody that's putting together a book. You know, this will be Stevie Archibald's first book. Hey. I think he's been trying to do it for about 10 years. Stevie's a bit like the Scarlet Pimpernel. Can he track him down, you know? But I think he still lives in Barcelona. That was the last I heard. The last time I spoke to him was at that Scandinavian Masters tournament. Just going back to your scouting there, Andy, you spoke about Kieran Dyer earlier on. Was mm. is a, a particular player that uh, you missed out on that you, you thought would have went on to become a, become a bit of a star? What is it, but couldn't, just couldn't get him? There was one I couldn't get, and it worked out beneficial in the long run. You know, was Georgie Kincladze at Manchester City. Absolutely phenomenal he was for about 18 months, two seasons. And any time I went to see him, oh, it was just unreal. He was just one of these players that could get you up off your seat, even although you weren't a Man City supporter. And uh, I'd heard that Man City would, would sell him and uh, they would sell him at a decent price. And I, I thought, that, not very much money for Georgie King Clancy. Little did I know he was a bit of a screwball, you know, and <laughs> they didn't know where he was for one day to the next. They were just trying to capitalise and get the £4 million from And uh, I spent a bit of time on that, trying to get him in. It was at the time when Celtic were just moving back to from Hamden to Celtic Park. And we'd full stadium to fall and all that. I thought King Clancy could just be the man for that. Anyway, let us down at the 11th hour. And it worked out. It was probably the best deal I've ever done for Celtic. I saved them £4 million buying a absolute no-go merchant, you know. He'd turn up whenever he wanted to turn up. Uh, he didn't last long. He went to somewhere in Spain or something and lasted about six months. And he was gone. So that was dodging a bullet, scouting. There was one guy I would love to have got when I was at Aston Villa. He was a fella called Johan Miku, who played for Bordeaux and had, was a very good player. I saw him numerous times to try and get him in. You know, and the bit was he had, didn't have a lot of international caps, but he played under study. He's in Adin Zidane, which is no bad, you know. That's like following Frank Sinatra at karaoke. You know, he had a good record and everything else, and we didn't get him. Doug Ellis, the old chairman at Aston Villa at that time, pulled the plug late on in the deal and sacked the manager. So that didn't happen, and, and, and Miku went out to Roma, and you know, was a big, big star earlier in Roma, played really well. So I'm really sorry for Aston Villa's benefit that, you know, we didn't get Miku in like that, because at that time, we only just missed out by two points the previous season on Champions League football, and John Gregory wanted the best signings we could possibly to try and get a a place in the top six in the Premiership. You know, if we'd have got Miku in, that would have led to other signings as well, you know. So they two, they two were guys that I would like to have brought to, to the clubs that I was working with at that time. And also as well, I remember Vim Jansen went to bring two players in. I had never seen them. And he said to me, have you ever been to Japan? I said, no, unfortunately I haven't been to Japan. Get your passport looked out. You will go to Japan soon. 
I said, right, okay. Gets that sorted out. I was travelling to Europe, but I wasn't going that far. And I went in to see him. He said, right, organise the trip. So I phoned up Canvas Line Travel for them to organise everything out like that. And I said to him, Vim, who are the players that I'm going to see? He said, you're going to see a boy called Nakata. And you're going to see uh, the Cameroon striker. Oh, what was his name? Patrick Mboma. They're both playing in Japan. Vim had seen them in Japan and was desperate to get the two of them there. Uh, sorted everything out with them that come back and to get it cleared off at top level up the stairs. And top level wouldn't let them send anybody out and didn't want to sign the two players. And I believe that was the first time that Vim had ever run into any problems at Celtic Park in regards to signing new players. You know, after that, the whole relationship with the recruitment department and the football department upstairs was was bad. Hmm. You know, they brought Jock Brown in to try and pour oil on it a few times, but it didn't work. I think when Vim knew that he wasn't going to be able to bring his own players in, he had more or less decided because we'd, we hadn't... We had they brought in Paul Lambert by that time. You know, we managed to get Paul Lambert in later on after that. And, you know, that made a wee bit of difference. But I think Vim more or less decided at that time when he didn't get Nakata, who went on to play in the World Cup that summer, dyed his hair red for Japan and ended up playing with Lazio. And Patrick Mboma scored goals for the Cameroon in the World Cup as well. I think once Vim decided that, he wasn't getting the players in he wanted. He was only going to be staying there a year. Right, Andy Smith, I think that says just one more page, that says done. Steve Daly in the back page, and that's the end of the magazine. Yeah. Yeah. I remember doing one of them for shit. That's, that's what I was asking. I, I don't think I've found a focus on for you yet, so I'll, I'll keep looking. Um, before we go, it was mentioned that you were in the Melchester Rovers team. Is this yes, correct? Yes, I, I played for a season with Roy Race, hmm. yes. Because I've 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 looked through the the copies and stuff that I've I've got, so unfortunately I don't seem to have that. Um, what sort of year would that have been? Would that have been? I think about that, that would have been about seventy seven, seventy eight, round about that time. Right, I'll need to keep an eye out for that because um, I've, I had a chat. You know, Chris McNulty, who's on uh, Twitter uh-huh. as well, but so he uh-huh. he he seems to remember it. He thinks he had a copy, but he thinks he moved it on. But it's definitely something. Cover that... it down there because Andy Ritchie played for Manchester United and Brighton and all them. Mm-hmm. So they could cover it down in England with an Andy Ritchie in England, and, you know, for Roy and the Rovers. Yeah, Andy Ritchie in Scotland, that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, uh, you know, they just they, they would put the players' names in. It was a big thing, yeah. you know. It was a big thing to play with Roy and the Rovers because mm. we've all read that, we've all seen it, you know. And, yeah, uh, and I played as a left winger, and with Roy Race, you know. <laughs> Because I wore number 11, you know, but I was never a left winger. Yeah. And you're mentioning earlier on, see this focus? Yeah. I remember doing this with you guys. And and it, you asked me a question earlier on about what pisses you off. I'd put in here green up traffic wardens because that season <laughs> I had got a sponsor car and had my name on the side of the car down in green up. Right. Alexander's sponsor, Andy Ritchie Morton. And everywhere I parked, I got a bloody ta- parking ticket. The wardens just spotted the motor and just stuck the parking ticket on anyway. Mm. And when I took it back into the garage, about 25 parking tickets, Alexander's and four people in Greenup. And it was the day before I did this. And it, I'm trying to look through. 
miscellaneous dislikes, clean yeah. up traffic wardens up and that just made it ten times worse. <laughs> yeah. The so, following week. Yeah. Brilliant. Listen, Andy, what 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 are you doing at the moment? So you you're you said you're gonna be um getting involved again with the, the Morton the Morton show thing that's going on. Uh, but is there any anything else you're involved with? Uh, well Jerry McDade and myself uh, Jerry approached me about a year and a half ago to see if I'd get involved with the hospitality that he was doing at Capelo and one or two other things. I had done some things with Jerry as well, evenings with, audience with, all that kind of stuff around about. Uh, so I knew Jerry yeah. in the agency. So I agreed to do that. So for the year prior to, is there a term for it? A year prior to covid <laughs> is that the right right way of putting it? Yeah. Uh, we did the hospitality down at Greenock between the two years. Right. And it seemed to be reasonably successful. And then when COVID came in, that was put on hold. We had all that time off for the game. And then everybody to start up the footballing stream, you know, the live games, yeah, yeah. giving out, you know, on stream like that, online, if that's the right phrase. And Jerry and myself did that and it seemed to work seemed to be successful people who were tuned in quite enjoyed it Jerry's very professional in what he does with the stream and I just demab it that's all the old Roy Walker one say what you see you try and be nice about it all sometimes you can sometimes you're no you know (sighs) I'm not meaning to be nasty I'm trying to be funny maybe sometimes when it comes out the other way but it's just me I just do what I'm doing so that's what we were doing regards to the football side of things, you know. You know, other than that, nothing. Mm. I applied for I applied for two jobs at Morton, would you believe? Right. And I've been refused the two of them. You know, so I applied for the kit man's job, would you believe? Right. And I would love to have got that job yeah, about a year and a half ago. And then the kit man had just left and they were going to be employing one. I, I intimated that I would like to go back down again and get involved in the football side of it. Hoppy wanted me to come in, do all that, join the backroom team with him, do the kit, do the scouting, use the experience there, 50 years that I've got in the game. And then COVID hit. And that was all put to the side. You know, the club was closed for that length of time. And uh, then when the new people came in, they advertised for a kit man. I said, hold on a wee minute. I've already advertised for that job. Do I need to advertise again? No, you don't, Andy. Don't worry about that. You don't need to ad- You don't need to apply for the job. I thought, well, that's not bad. I've maybe got a wee chance of getting that. No, same again. Uh, no cat man's job like that. Uh, so I would love to have done that. I'd love to get involved and back in the club again. Yeah. You know, the supporters at Morton Football Club are absolutely fantastic. They've been brilliant to me. Be forty odd years. Since I played down at Morton, four decades plus, you know, and stuff that grandfathers have seen, they passed on to their sons, who have now passed on to their sons as well. Yeah. God bless YouTube. You know, every so often they get a goal that Andy Ritchie scores and it seems to, to please people. But the vast majority that come along to Morton games now never ever seen me playing football. Yeah. And that's nice. It gives you a nice warm glow of satisfaction for 10 seconds when that happens, when a 17-year-old boy wants to come up and use his telephone to take a phone to show somebody in his family his picture to me. So it's nice. I enjoy that. 
the, the football side, I would love to get back involved with the club, but they didn't want it. Mm-hmm. And the new mob, Morton Club together, they don't want it as well. They finally sent one back that, you know, they'd given the kit man's job out to somebody else. They didn't want to give it to me. Mm. So I'll be back to you maybe doing the stream next year, hopefully with Jerry again. I think we've still to speak to them about that. We've done one already. And I'll be able to watch the games every fortnight. And I'm going to take another wee scouting job in the game that I'm just trying to sort out in the next week to 10 days. Okay, uh, working for working for another club. So that's my intention. And I'll be 66 in February, so I'll be an old age pensioner by that time. So I'll be able to retire. <laughs> Brilliant. That's my plans for the future. No, listen, best of luck to you with it all, and I hope that all works out. And um, listen, I'm, I'm just going to thank you so very much for, for taking the time out to, to come on to the podcast and go through this with us. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's I've actually fun. grew a beard for this podcast, <laughs> Yeah, well, so far, and I can't grow one, so that's how long we've been on. But um, no, listen, it's been absolutely fantastic. You know, you, 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 you are an absolute, you know, I don't mind saying this to you, you're a legend of the Scottish game. Um, so many people do have such great memories of you, um, and you know, as, as you as you said there as well, people are making new memories from watching the the YouTube clips and things like that. Again, it's absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, for, from me personally, brilliant. Thank you for taking the time out. Yeah, no problem. I got a green up now, and I feel like a politician. I'm kissing babies all the time, you know. <laughs> no, um, nah, yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, you take care and. Um, you know, I'll, I'll keep them um, copying you in all the Andy Ritchie um, content that I find on Twitter. And yeah, again, all the best to you. Um, th- thanks to your, your son Stevie for for sorting this out as well and sitting. Is he still there? Has he nodded off? I think he's he's actually went out the back and committed suicide. <laughs> he's said to listen to this. <laughs> right, right. But that's what happens when you're a Celtic supporter. Yeah. You can put up with all this shit. Don't let him worry you. Yeah. So, you know, thank you again, Andy, and thank you from me to, you know, people listening to the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. As always, follow us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, share the the podcast, follow us. There'll be a website associated with this as well. So, you know, while you're listening back, you'll be able to see the pages that we've been speaking about as well. Um, So from myself, thank you very much. It's um, from Tom. Thank you for being Tom. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Andy, again for joining us. Thanks, Andy and Tom. God bless. And until the next time, let's shoot the breeze.